0: Jesus' very first followers asked him this question, Lord, will you teach us how to pray? It wasn't the case that they didn't know any prayers, but it was the case that they didn't really know how to talk to God. All all they knew were some memorized prayers that they'd been taught in religious instruction when they were little bitty kids. And they had recited those prayers all of their lives long. And that's what you had to do in order to be considered a good religious person in their culture. The problem is that they'd been reciting all of these prayers, which were largely praises to God, not bad things, but they hadn't seen anything that really happened as a result of reciting those prayers. As far as they could tell, none of their prayers had ever really made a difference, because they had prayed prayers like, Lord, preserve our land, and it was occupied by the Romans. Some of them had prayed, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, like like Jesus taught us to pray, some Old Testament versions of that, and yet some of them were a people going hungry. This isn't isn't Pastor Cliff weighing in against uh, prayers that you learned and memorized when you were a kid. It's just that the folks who were listening to Jesus that day said, there's something different about the way that you pray because it sounds like you actually think you're talking to God. So as they heard Jesus talking to God, he was talking to him like he was his father, and that was an idea that was completely foreign to them. So they came to Jesus one day and said, teach us to pray like that. Don't teach us any more of the other prayers. Teach us how to do that, how it is that you can have the kind of relationship where you just talk to God like he's your dad. Nothing goes farther toward making us genuine followers of Jesus than having teachable hearts like that. This is yeah, 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 I know how to do religion, but what I want to know how to do is how to connect with God in ways that actually change my life. The Jesus people in ancient Corinth, Greece, were, were not getting a whole lot right when it came down to the business of following Jesus, and that, that's pretty evident as you read your way through the Apostle Paul's letters to the Corinthian church that are found in the Bible's New Testament. But why would they get it right, really? They hadn't been raised as Jesus people. They hadn't been raised as Old Testament Jewish people. They'd been raised in a completely different culture. They'd never heard many of the things that Jesus and the apostles were saying to them. They developed a whole different worldview through which they looked at life and relationships and and all of these things. So why would they get it right? And that is why Paul had to go in there and teach them what life looks like when you surrender your life Jesus Christ. Paul had to go there and, and, and teach them how to do relationships, because you do relationships differently when you're a follower of Jesus. And to the Corinthians' credit, they recognized the fact that they didn't at all look at life the same way as this one that Jesus had sent to them, the apostle Paul, but rather than stubbornly holding on to their old beliefs, rather than defending our ways the right way, they instead softened their hearts and said, Spirit of God, will you speak to us? Man of God, will you speak to us? And so they they wrote a letter to Paul. So we have some questions. Maybe you could teach us. And and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, those two books in the Bible, are the way that Paul answered those questions for them. As you read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it begins with Paul writing, now for the matters that you wrote about. He'd written some things that he thought they needed to know. And at this point in the letter, he gets to the section where he says, I'm going to answer some of the questions that you sent to me. And then he begins to write about marriage and divorce and remarriage it becomes apparent that the Corinthians had asked Paul, will you teach us how to be married? Because we don't seem to be doing it very well. Um, Before I dive into this thing, um, I want you to know some things. I made it a purpose in my heart that I have never violated, ever, that I will not go to the pulpit to preach against people. I'll never go to the pulpit um, to preach a sermon to a congregation when one person needs to hear what I have to say and it would be more appropriate to go to them one on one. I also made a promise a long time ago that I would never chicken out whenever the Bible challenges my courage. And one of the ways that I keep myself uh, surrendered to that and committed to that is that though from time to time I will preach topically the way that I, that I love to preach is to just take a book of the Bible and work my way through it. And here's why. I think that this thing, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, knows far better how to shape a congregation to follow Christ than I do. And if I'm the one who is just constantly saying, here are my favorite things to preach about... I run the risk of creating disciples of Cliff instead of disciples of Christ. So, um, I'm quite sure that the world has enough Cliff Purcells. But I'm also quite sure that there are not nearly enough true disciples of Jesus Christ. And so, I I do things like launch into 1 Corinthians, knowing that sooner or later I'm going to get to chapter 6 and chapter 7. But it also just sets me free to say, here's what God's word says. And so that's how we come to chapter 7 this week. And when we come to chapter 7 and it talks about things that, that address very real people and very real families in our congregation, I want you to know this. In obedience to the Lord, I want to teach you what God's word says. And God's word says some things like thou shalt not. And every time that it says thou shalt not, it also says that there's enough grace to be forgiven for sin. Okay, so as we listen to this today, as as we work our way through it, let's remember that Jesus himself, the scriptures say, was full of grace and truth. And today, let's make sure that as we look at the scriptures and we focus on truth, that we also remember there's abundant grace for us for forgiveness of sins and abundant grace to live according to the truth when we learn it. Okay, everybody with me? All right. Paul evidently thought very differently about marriage than we do here in America. What he envisioned as the picture of marriage in the church was dramatically different than what we see in American culture. And what we see in the American church is virtually no different than what we see in the American culture. See what I'm saying? Paul's vision for marriage, very different than his culture. Our culture, almost identical to Paul's culture when it came to marriage. And life in the church, almost no different than life outside the church in America. The church's um, picture of marriage as we have painted it and lived it differs dramatically from what Paul teaches us here. When it comes to marriage, the American church is a lot more like the unbelieving world around us than it is like the picture that Paul paints of marriage whenever marriage is worked out within the kingdom of God. So it's with sadness that I've arrived at the unavoidable uh, conclusion and confess on behalf of our church today that the church does not believe what the Bible teaches us to believe about marriage We clearly don't believe what the Bible teaches about marriage. And because of what we believe about the scriptures themselves, we have to confess that we have fallen short of God's intended glory. Lord, hear our prayers. Uh, Before I go further, I need to tell you a a few things. First, I'm going to teach you what the passage has to say about marriage, and I suggest that you begin to find some ways to apply it in your life. Second, I do so with a heart that is both sad and compassionate, not angry and accusatory. I'm deeply troubled by the wreckage that I am seeing in our culture. The disobedience of individual Christians in marital matters has hurt generation after generation after generation of their own families. The collective disobedience of the church and its response to Christians' sin and failure in marital matters has left the world around us justifiably calling us hypocrites, and particularly so whenever we try to enter into the discussion on homosexuality and homosexual marriage in our culture. The truth is, we have absolutely no credibility left by which to influence our country when it comes to talking about marriage of any kind and that's why I'm not, um, I'm not renting some television time to try to tell the world out there how they ought to be married. Instead, we're talking to us followers of Jesus today. It's no one's fault but our own. When I hear the sorrow in the voices of, of people whose marriages are being dismantled, my heart aches. I have had the extreme displeasure in my job as pastor of telling little children something that their parents couldn't bring themselves to say. Call the pastor and ask him to tell the kids that we're getting a divorce. It's not very good duty. I remember being the little boy who once was on the receiving end of that news. And it still hurts. And it changed my life forever. As I teach from this passage today, uh, I'm not going to pontificate about how I have stayed married and a bunch of you haven't, so you should listen to me, the great authority on marriage. Instead, I'm a brother in the Lord who's been asked to teach all of us the Christian scriptures. So that's what I'm trying to do. Third, I wouldn't dream of leaving here today without talking about where we go from here once we realize how our picture of marriage differs from what we see in the scriptures. We need some help, right? So let's look to God's word for it. Time's not going to allow me to unpack every nuance of this entire chapter. This has been the hardest week of study of my entire life as a pastor. I have spent more hours um, beating the books, trying to come to understand that world in which Paul was preaching and how it was different from the world in which he grew up and how those two things together are very different than the world in which you and I live. And those three different pictures of marriage have almost nothing in common except that we call them marriage and they involved a man and a woman together, hopefully for a lifetime and almost always falling short. So trying to to study this week was an extremely difficult thing, and I don't have the time to tell you all of that stuff, but I have a sneaking suspicion that you didn't show up today looking for a primer in Greco-Roman social contracts, right? So instead, I'm just going to kind of cut to the chase, going to not do all of the the historical work, and I'm going to just ask you to trust me that I studied hard this week. And here's what I believe that the scriptures are trying to teach you and I to do about marriage, divorce, and remarriage in our culture. Number one, uh, I think that this passage teaches us that though there may be differences in function between husbands and wives, there is no difference in value between men and women. Read down through that passage, and you will see that almost all of the time, Paul said, husbands and likewise wives, or wives and likewise husbands. And it was a first in world history. Never before had women been treated like equals to men. And so the apostle Paul just launches right into this thing and instead of making an an overt case for women are just as good as men or men are just as good as women, he addresses them saying, there are instructions that apply and they apply whether you're a man or a woman. And it amounts to this. Husbands, be really, really good to your wives. Wives, be really, really good to your husbands. And anything that you think applies to your spouse as you point at them with your angry, understand that it's going to apply to you as well. Though there may be differences in in function of husbands and wives, there is no difference in value between men and women. Historically, husbands have had and have wielded relational power over wives. Not surprisingly, wives aren't really that into it. That was funny, and Jeremy is the only person in here who got it. Not surprisingly, wives have often rebelled against that because oftentimes that power has been wielded by husbands selfishly and sometimes abusively. And in the last 40 years, there's been a pendulum swing in our culture that has given wives a lot of power over husbands, both socially and legally. And what I hear in my office time and time again is that many husbands now feel powerless, unloved, and misused in their marriages. Great! Now we have justice, right? The will of God is that now the the herder can be hurt? No. No. The pendulum has swung, and we still haven't gotten it right. Which is better, for a wife to be misused or for a husband to be misused? Neither, of course, because neither of those things aligns with what Jesus and the apostles taught us about marriage. Neither of those things is Christian. Neither of those things recognizes that the person that you are hurting was created in the image of God and is inherently valuable. Beautiful and worthy of good treatment. Well, elsewhere, Paul teaches about headship and, and, and its function in marriage in this passage. And in that one, we learn this idea. Mutual submission to one another is taught plainly and consistently in Paul's writings about marriage. Why? Because men and women are equally loved by God Equally valued by God, both in his eyes and in his heart. And if you or I value either gender less than the other, if we value either marriage role less, we are wrong, and we do wrong. How you treating your spouse? It matters. Number two. This passage teaches us that marital status, while significant, is not nearly as important as spiritual status. If you read the entirety of this chapter, you'll see that Paul goes on at great length about being single, about being engaged, about being married, about being widowed, about being divorced, about being remarried. He covered it all in there. Apparently, there's some considerable significance to marital status. But interestingly, he admits that that most of what he wrote in this section is merely his opinion. Man, I appreciate a guy who says, "Uh, you need to know the difference when I'm teaching you what God thinks and what I think. And in this passage, Paul said, I've got a command that comes from the Lord. One, and he gave it, and all the rest of it, he said I'm just going to share with you my wisdom. There is a command from this passage. We'll, we'll get to it in a moment. But we must also be careful not to be dismissive of Paul's wisdom, of his, his opinion. But, but one man's opinion doesn't hold the same weight as the command of God. So as you read your way down through there, just remind yourselves who's speaking at the moment. And when it's God, it's a, it's a thou shalt. It's a thus saith the Lord. And when he's not saying thus saith the Lord, you understand that Paul was ordained by God and sent by God, but in his honesty, he said, I'm just going to tell you what to think about this. And so there's a little bit of room for us to work with that. But it's the fool who says, ah, I don't need to know what that guy had to say. I've already got this all figured out. Paul seems to be driving uh, at something in this passage, and it's, it's that whatever your marital status is, that's less important than your spiritual status. And he calls Christians to place living for Christ as our very top priority, period. So he was he had, and the, the church to which he was writing were, were un, undergoing a time of, of, of great pressure, and in it he said, listen, at times like this, It is best for you to not change anything about your marital status. Where you are right now, surrender that thing to God. Ask him to enable you to live within it. But make serving Christ your top priority because there's some pressure that is going to greatly affect the church and give the church great opportunity in its culture. Mm. So he says, marital status important but not as important as spiritual status. Make serving Christ your top priority. Freely admits that that marriage, and I I skipped part of this passage just because of length, um, but he freely admits that marriage complicates things for people. Uh, Listen, do not raise your hands, okay? Do not raise your hands, okay? But a little um, um, internal word of testimony from those of of us who have said, wow, marriage is sometimes not that convenient. Marriage is sometimes not that comfortable, Marriage sometimes doesn't feel that good. Marriage is hard. Paul said, yeah, and those things sometimes really distract you from serving Jesus himself. That's why he said, look, what condition are you in? Just live it. And put serving Christ as the top priority in your life. He goes on, however, to be very practical and say, some people can't live in the condition that they're in, and if they're a unmarried, and they, they think they're probably just going to fall into a life of sexual immorality, it is better for them to get married and then serve the Lord with what they have left. Paul, practical guy. He, uh, I, I think it's fair to say that um, when it comes right down to it, he had his opinions, but he said neither state is more important to God, married or single. Just whichever of those you are, make sure you do it with everything you've got to give glory to God and to do good to your spouse. So whether a person is a single Christian or a widowed Christian or a divorced Christian or a married Christian, we can live all out as servants of Jesus Christ. It's just that some of us are not going to have a lot left over because we bound ourselves into a covenant with a spouse and family. We will have less to give should be noted that this passage teaches that God gifts some people with singleness. It's like a a talent or spiritual gift for them. And some people have a gift for marriage. And some people, I think, are married and not using their gifts very well. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If you find it hard to, to do whatever it is that you find yourself doing right now, being single and living for Christ, being married and living for Christ, understand this that if in your heart you set Christ as your top priority, and if you then seek the leading of God's Holy Spirit about how to do your current thing well, you still may not get it perfect, but living by the power of the Spirit, you can bring glory to God in ways that people with a different marital status cannot. There's glory for God in your situation if you surrender it to him and ask for the help of his Holy Spirit. If you find it uh, hard to to serve Christ and to be married, Paul kind of shrugs his shoulders and says, well, you did it to yourself, so stop your whining and and get back to being a faithful servant of Jesus. Oh, yeah, and be faithful to your spouse. But he's also very, very practical, so he teaches people that can't handle sexual temptation, uh, the the temptation that comes with being single, divorced, or widowed. Um, He says there are things you can do about that, like getting married instead of burning with passion what I'm driving out here is this i think what paul says is god has these ideas these ideals and he equips people to live up to them by the power of his holy spirit but he also remembers that he made us out of dust we have our limits and so paul i think very practically and beautifully says be practical and do what you have to to be the most obedient that you can does that make sense Be practical and do whatever you have to do to be the most obedient that you can. Third, divorce. The passage talks about divorce, and he gives us here one command and then a handful of weighty opinions, his opinions, as guided by the Holy Spirit. The only command from God in this chapter is found in verses 10 and 11, and it comes down to this. Christians, don't divorce. It's a thou shalt not. Work through it is what Paul's implying here. He's not in any way saying, um, Christians, you've got it easy. He's not in any way saying, Christian marriage is always more enjoyable than other marriages. He's not. But what he is saying is there is a command from the Lord who takes words like, till death do us part very, very seriously, because that's a covenant. That's what makes a covenant marriage, a covenant relationship, a covenant relationship. And that's the only kind of relationship that he offers to us. See, you don't get to to pick the kind of relationship you have with God. He won't be your drinking buddy. He won't be your fishing partner. He won't be your Facebook friend. He offers instead only covenant relationship. You get in with God, it's a till death do us part kind of deal. And that relationship with him, that kind of relationship, covenant relationship, he offers also in marriage. That's why he says, um, hey, when you begin a relationship with me, I intend for you to finish this deal. You're supposed to walk with me faithfully all of your life. And he expects the same of us in our marriages. When we say, till death do we part, God holds us accountable for it. So what he tells us is when life gets, what he's implying here is that when marriage gets difficult, and it does, work through it. Listen, can, can I give you just a, 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 I think, a helpful hint that would really make my life easier too. get some help before it is too late. I'm just going to speak out of the "Mm," in my heart right now, okay? If the first time I hear from you is when you say I quit, you and I are going to have trouble. I don't do nice Christian divorces. But I will help anybody who asks. You hear me? Hear what I'm saying? Do you hear my heart today? There is help available if you are struggling in your marriage. There are brothers and sisters who will come alongside you. There are paid Christian counselors who can help you. And you have three pastors and and other ordained men in this congregation who can help you. We've been taught and trained how to help. Please don't come to me to announce your divorce. Please come to me and say, I need some help because with God's help, we think that you can work through the hard things in your marriage and we'll help you. Get some help before it's too late. Quit making excuses for your bad behavior toward your spouse. Quit using their bad behavior to justify your own. Quit holding on to bitterness and forgiveness. Stay married and learn how to be married Well. Laura and I have made a decision that uh, for the rest of the time, however long it is that God has us here as your pastor and family, Wednesday nights in the fall and Wednesday nights in the spring, we are going to invest ourselves at this church in teaching marriage and parenting till the Lord himself comes back or tells me to head down the road. Because I don't think I can leave a greater legacy to this church than teaching us how to do marriage and parenting with the help of God. So come Wednesday nights in the fall, you'll start seeing some things toward the end of the summer. Um, we're going to talk about, um, about particularly about raising boys this fall. In the spring, we're going to talk about raising girls, and then from there, we're going to launch into some marriage-specific stuff. Okay. But uh, there's this command in Scriptures. Christians, hang in there. Christians, work through it. Christians, thou shalt not on the divorce thing. It's the command of God, and it stands to this day. But there's a question, isn't there? What if? What, what, what if I haven't? Paul weighs in on the, on the what ifs, a number of them, by offering his own opinions and, and making sure that we know that these don't carry the same weight as a thou shout from the Lord, but they do come with, with, with generations of Christian wisdom and Jewish wisdom behind them. Let's look at them. What if one of the spouses is a Christian and the other is not? Okay, a mixed marriage faith-wise. And the unbeliever wants to end the marriage. I can't believe this. But Paul says, yeah, let him. I, I gotta tell you, it's not the advice I would have given. If, if a, a person in our congregation, a believer, had an unbelieving spouse and came to me and said, Pastor, my, my, my spouse wants to leave me, what should I do? The, the, one of the first five answers I would give is not, well, just let him. So here's the deal. I kind of sort of disagree with Paul. But I've decided that I need to be obedient to God's word. So to teach you what the scriptures say is more important than Cliff's wisdom on the deal. This is what the word says. Okay? If, you're, uh, if, if you're married as a believer to an unbeliever and the unbeliever says, I want to leave, Paul says, let him. What if one of the spouses is a Christian and the other is not, and the believer wants to end the marriage? How about that? Paul says, no. He says no, and, and here's why. He says, if you leave, you can't be God's secret agent to your spouse and your family. In this passage, he teaches that when, particularly when you are in a a marriage, uh, I'm going to say a mixed marriage, and I don't mean racially from, uh, you know, I didn't originally, and I don't from here forward, I'm talking about a person who's married uh, to a believer and an unbeliever who are married, okay? In a mixed marriage, Paul says, the Christian has a mission from God and sits in this unique and beautiful position to be used by God to bring the the spirit of God and his, his influence into the marriage so that the children and the unbelieving spouse may actually one day come to be born again and know the blessing of life connected with Christ. And so, Paul says to the Christian in a mixed marriage, if you want to leave, don't, because God, you, you want to know what God's will for your life is? Stay and be the missionary to your family. God's got a plan to use you. You may not always be able to see it. There may be such blinding pain in your marriage and your family life that all you can think is, I got to get out of here. Again, get some help, ask for some help, but understand that even when you can't tell it, God is using you in your home. He's using you in your home. What if both spouses are believers and one of them wants to get a divorce? Well, Paul didn't offer an opinion on that. He offered the command of God, don't get divorced. God has no intention of blessing your nice Christian divorce. He blesses Christian marriages. And he commands us to stay married, and that means we're going to need to learn how to be married well. More on that later, not today. Uh, Fourth thing in this passage. Uh, He he talks about remarriage, and he says it's kind of complicated. I have a friend who um, got divorced. And uh, she married a man whose wife had died, and they put their two beautiful families together into one. And um, she said, Let me explain to you what that's like. It's like setting your own hair on fire and then attempting to put it out with a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> They've worked some things out, and they have a beautiful family, but let's just say that remarriage oh, it's complicated. Remember that Paul placed top priority on serving Christ with absolutely everything you've got. And it's in that context uh, that he says, "Mm, I have some advice for you. In matters other than the clear command of God, Christians don't get divorced. He gave only his opinion, but here it is. We as Christians are considered the wisdom of, of Christ's apostle. When it comes to remarriage, here's what he taught. First, he taught that the highest good might just be to remain single so that you can serve Christ without marital restraint in your newfound singleness. He says, Why don't you turn your energies from cruising for chicks or ch- cruising for guys? Why don't you turn all of that energy of yours into serving Christ? Everything you got. No, he meant, it's okay. Second, he taught that if you're, a, if you're single because of divorce, I wasn't expecting any. I was just, you know, giving you a chance. Second, he taught that if you're single because of divorce, reconciling with your ex is a noble and good thing, and that marrying a second person is not. Jesus taught basically the same thing, and he used one word to describe it, and the word was adultery. Third, Paul said that getting married again might not be the very best thing, but that for widows and widowers, it's permissible. There's the book report on remarriage. It's complicated. Uh, Let's see how much... mm, I'll get as much of the sermon done as I can today. How's that? Sex and marriage. He teaches about sex and marriage in this passage. In... uh, I think I would call it sex and marriage a strange kind of freedom. Here, I do need to refer to the details for just a moment of, of common Corinthian or Greco-Roman marriage. Marriage in the days of the Roman Empire was not seen as religious at all or even primarily as an intimate relationship. Marriage in the days of the Roman Empire was a social contract for the purposes of running a business and or a home or to improve your social standing. That being the case, I know it sounds really strange to us romantic Americans, but love and affection were not the primary drivers in marriage in the Greco-Roman world. Having personnel on hand to run the family home and to run the family business or to run the family farm, those were the primary drivers. Alongside marrying someone who might be a little, uh, you know, just one rung up the ladder socially for you so that you could move up one, one layer into the, the higher social echelons, those were the, the, the big considerations in Roman marriage. And that being the case, almost all marriages except among the very poor were arranged No matter the culture, no matter the time in world history, arranged marriage has often resulted in basically loveless marriages, there are exceptions, and loveless marriages usually result in relatively sexless marriages, and sexless marriages usually result in adulterous marriages. There's the equation. Almost always have, almost always will. In Corinthian culture, it became common then for people to live in to just accept this, this loveless, sexless, social marriage thing and then for the men to see prostitutes on the side or get lovers on the side. And I don't need to tell you that that's destructive. I don't need to tell you that that's poisonous to family life, nor do I need to tell you about its generational effects on women, uh, on, on families, or what it says about the relative value of women. So Paul, however, Thought he needed to, and he waded into this mess, and he said, you asked me to teach you how to be married well, how to have Christian marriages, and part of that answer is for both the husband and the wife to fully enter into the sexual relationship that is part and parcel of marriage. When he taught that wives' bodies do not belong to them but to their husbands, all of the Corinthian men and all of the American men started high-fiving. Yeah, baby. But then he said that the husbands' bodies don't belong to them but to their wives. And again, all of the Corinthian men and the American men said, Sweet, and started high-fiving again. Until they realized that the implication of that teaching is that it meant that married men to, were to be restricted from venturing outside of their marriages for any kind of sexual fulfillment. Right? Right. When it comes to married sex, no matter who you are or your gender, you are owned. And you are to be all in. Paul even saw that he was going to have to cut some people off at the past. The ones, the ones who didn't like the notion of being owned and, and all in would throw up some exception or excuse such as, Well, I know I'm married, but I'm such a good Christian that I've decided to keep myself pure as a way of honoring Jesus. Paul said there's no such thing as that in marriage. Being married means yielded to your spouse sexually, and it means being all in. There's an interesting word in that section of text, though. The word is perhaps. In teaching on the requirement of full sexual involvement in marriage, he says to the folks who who thought they could get off the hook by claiming to be celibate for Jesus in marriage, he said, well, I suppose perhaps perhaps. Maybe that you could abstain from sex once in a while. But to make sure that you don't abuse that as a perpetual excuse that sets your spouse up for frustration and temptation and sin, that business of, of abstaining from sex, perhaps, maybe, can only happen with a set of conditions. One, if you both agree. Two, if it's a short period of time. And three, if that time is for the express purpose of you being able to pray more. Then he says, come back together sexually quickly so that neither of you is tempted to sin. Here's the word of truth from Pastor Cliff. Most of us are not praying so much that we run out of time to have sex with our spouses. And sex is an important thing, Paul taught If most of us prayed five times as much as we currently do, we still would have 20-ish minutes somewhere every day or two or three to make our spouses feel loved and desired and satisfied and drawn to us one more time. I cannot believe he's saying these things. I cannot believe he's saying these things. They're going to put it on the podcast. What's wrong with that guy? Listen, in this room, we undoubtedly have Christian people who are unmarried but sexually active. The statistics tell us that. In this room, we have Christian people who have married, divorced their Christian spouses, and married a second person and may have done that a couple more times as well. In this room, we have Christian people who are deeply dissatisfied with their current marriage and want out. They're thinking about it. In this room, we have Christian people who use sex to control or manipulate or punish their spouses instead of using sex to affirm them and build them up in love and to strengthen the marital bond. In this room, we have people who couldn't imagine letting service for Christ be the determining factor in whether they're going to marry again or stay single. And in this room we have the word of God at our fingertips addressing each of these situations. So, what if one or more of these descriptions fits you? Do you stand condemned before God and the church today? You're going to end up in hell because of these things? You want the real answer? The real answer is it depends. It depends on how you respond to your awareness of your own sin. While we've studied earlier in 1 Corinthians the teaching that intentional, rebellious hypocrites should be worked with, warned, and then eventually removed from the church so that their poison doesn't doesn't spread, and so Jesus' reputation isn't dragged through the mud. I cannot find a single indication of any kind that would lead me to believe that God kicks strugglers when they have fallen down. I can't find one thing in the Scriptures that teaches me that I have the responsibility or freedom to do so when he doesn't. I can't find one thing in the Scriptures that teaches me that your sin is worse than mine. So it comes down to this, if if you recognize your sin and you want to turn from it, ask God for forgiveness and help today. And you will get exactly that. Choose to intentionally continue in your sin and you will find yourself at odds with God and and, and possibly with his church one day. God forgives and changes Everyone who seeks forgiveness and change. I'm going to say that again. It's really important. God forgives and changes absolutely everyone who seeks forgiveness and change. He also leaves alone those who want to be left alone in their sin. If today your heart is seized by sorrow over your present sin, or if you're struggling with sin from your past, if you're struggling with your marriage today, if you're struggling with your singleness, or your divorce, or your loneliness, or your anything, know this. There's a God who knows your past. There's a God who knows your pain. There's a God who knows your weakness. And there's a God who knows your heart. And he is willing to meet you exactly where you are in this moment and to forgive you and to change you and to do life with you. And that means that life can be different from this point forward. From this point forward, life can be obedient and blessed. Just be real with him as we pray. But let's pray and let's get serious about it. Let's let's let God go to work in our hearts, and, and then let's each of us go to work in whatever marital state we find ourselves, earning for the church collectively and for each of us individually the right to talk to our world about relationships and about marriage and about love and about sex and about the kingdom of God in which each of these things is real, and satisfying.